we've given up on church, but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our locations in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Thanks! Listen, before we jump in, I just have some important uh, business I need to address. Uh, we are a set-up church. In case you didn't know this, none of this is here for us when we arrive on a Sunday morning. And while we look forward anxiously, even more excited than we are for Christmas morning, we are excited for the day uh, coming soon, but not here yet, when we will be in our permanent location on our new church land that we've already paid off, but we are not there yet. And uh, that means that every Sunday there are a group of faithful men and women who show up early to set all this up, and some who stick around late after the second service to pack up. And if you are uh, looking for a job, I promise it is not as hard as wrapping chocolates. Uh, In fact, it's actually a great joy because you get to be a part of something greater than yourself. And the the men and women who do it have have formed friendships and connections. It's really cool. We call it our share team because what we're doing is we're sharing our lives together. We're sharing our time. We're sharing our love for the mission of this church. And if you do not have a place where you are serving here at Westlake, I want to give you a challenge today uh, to consider joining one of our share teams. This card is on, on the chair next to you or under your bottom on the chair you're sitting on. And if you'll go ahead and take this out, um, we are looking for some folks to join that transformation team. It is an every other week commitment. And you're like, Aaron, I don't know. There's some weekends I'm not going to be here. I can't commit to that. Don't worry. Just sign up. We'll work with your schedule because we would love to have your help. In fact, we need your help. Uh, We need some fresh recruits to join the faithful men and women who've been serving there. So uh, if you're feeling a little nudge right now, a little elbow, uh, even if it is your spouse, I'm going to blame the Holy Spirit for that. So go ahead and write your name. Make sure your name and email is on here, and we'll get in touch with you about how you can be a part of helping us do what we do here on Sundays. Uh, Thanks for those of you who do that faithfully, Uh, but we need some new folks, so if you'll take a moment to do that. Okay, well, uh, we are in a series, appropriately so, uh, on work, and we've called this series, So What Do You Do?, which is the question we most often get asked when we're at a dinner party or meeting somebody for the first time, and it's all about our work life. We're looking at work, and, and that what we've discovered is that work is something that God actually created us to do, because our work life matters to God. Our work life and our faith life are intricately connected, and that's what we talked about last week. And if you miss that, whether you're, whether you're a student or whether you're, you work in the home or you work in the office or you're retired, you have some work that God has assigned you to do. And if you miss that message, we encourage you to check that out online. The podcast is available. Today's message is going to build on that. So uh, this last Monday, I was so excited. I woke up early anxious for my work week ahead of me, and I surrendered my day to God, and I said this. I said, God, whatever you have for me today is great, and it was the most amazing day. When I drove to work, every single traffic light was green. I got to work, and there was a a reserved parking spot in front of the office with a sign that somebody put up that said, world's greatest pastor. Then then I walked inside. Nobody's there yet, and the coffee was making itself. It was like a Christmas miracle. And then I opened my email and began my workday on Monday with email, and there was a manageable number of emails in my inbox, each one with an encouraging message or a piece of vitally important information carefully crafted to honor my time or an offer of something that was financially wise and deeply life-enhancing. 
In fact, thanks to one of those emails, I've been able to help a Nigerian prince get released from jail <laughs> and retrieve his family fortune. And I'll be getting a generous portion of that too, which of course I'll tithe to our church. Uh, then I, a family came in and they were in crisis and they were seeking my help. And I offered such wise counsel that they said, thank you, Aaron, you have saved our marriage, saved our family and our puppies. Then it came time to write the sermon, and I opened the file, and my fingers just began to move on their own effortlessly without any thought, and I wrote the most helpful, humorous, biblically informed, and inspirational sermon I have ever written. The Pope even called and asked to borrow my notes. Then my wife sent me a text and said this. She said, honey, you have been too helpful around the house lately. All the chores are done, and the kids do everything I ask out of sheer love and respect for you. Would you please spend more time at the office this week so we don't take you for granted? Has anyone ever had a work week like that? No. Nobody has ever had a day like that, have they? And whether you like your work or you don't like your work or you simply put up with your work, I think everyone can agree with this one thing. Work at times, work at times can be a big pain, can't it? And most of us face this on a daily basis. We face difficult customers, a demanding boss, mildly crazy coworkers, apathetic students, complaining parents, or a mountain of laundry the size of Kilimanjaro. Work for all of us at times is a pain. But why is this? Why is it that work is so hard? Why is it that work often feels like a four-letter word? That's what I want to talk with you about today. And what can we actually do about that? Here's what I want you to know up front about today's message, because whether you're a Christian or you're exploring the claims of Jesus, or, or maybe you're just a, a skeptic and you're not sure what you think about God at all, uh, here's, here's the big idea. The gospel, that is, the life and way of Jesus, actually has the potential not just to help us get through our work, but actually to redeem our work. If we will let it, I think what the scriptures show is that work is not only given from God, but can be redeemed by God, even in, in the midst of its hardship. Well, we're going to do a little bit of Bible teaching today, and I'm going to be all over the Bible. And if you're not a Bible person, don't worry. You can write down these references as we go through if you'd like to follow along. Uh, while the Bible doesn't answer all of our questions about work, it does give us a very helpful framework for understanding why sometimes it's so difficult. Uh, last week, we looked at chapters 1 and 2. God created man and woman, humankind, in his image. And God is a working God, and he has given us work to do. And in the beginning, in the first two chapters, it was all good. It was all good. But then something happens. And by the time we get to chapter 3, we discover that something has gone wrong. Adam and Eve, lured by the serpent's lies, commit an unthinkable act of folly. In eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve rebel against God. Sin and death enter into God's good world. And Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. Paradise is lost and sin brings a devastating effect on human work. And while work, here's a big idea up front, while work is not the result of the fall, work itself is profoundly impacted by the fall. After Adam and Eve's disobedience, God comes looking for them, and he finds Adam 
hiding in the break room behind the water cooler, God says this to him. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, this is the consequence of that sin. This is the consequence of what sin does to our work, and it's often referred to as the curse. Now, this can be a bit of a misnomer because we hear the curse and we think of, ooh, curse you, my pretty. You know, it's, not, it's not that kind of curse, right? The, the, the word curse here can actually be translated bitterness. In fact, I often wish that the scriptures, uh, translators did this because what happens here in the fall is that bitterness enters into every part of our life, just as bitterness enters into our work. When sin entered the world... It made the very nature of work harder. It made work more bitter. And the systems and structures that we deal with every day reflect this fallen, broken bitterness. In fact, I was thinking about some of the ways that we experience this bitterness. Uh, uh, one of the ways is just the bitter people we have to work with, right? Some of us have some coworkers, and man, what word describes them? Bitter. They're just bitter, right? Uh, I was thinking about a guy who said he described his office like a never-ending game of Fortnite. You know, Fortnite. He said basically you show up and everybody's trying to take you out. It doesn't. Even your supposed friends are just waiting to turn their backs on you, and the casualties are everywhere. That's his description of his work life. Some of us, it's not the bitter people we work with. It's actually the bitter tasks that we have to do. Uh, y'all know that show, uh, Mike Rose show on the Discovery Channel, Dirty Jobs. Anybody ever seen Dirty Jobs, right? Dirty Jobs done dirt cheap. So Dirty Jobs, uh, I love this. Mike has made a career out of finding and doing the jobs that nobody else wants to do. Some of these are really uh, funny. Uh, let me find this here. I've got a, uh, a list on these. Uh, yeah, so Mike takes jobs nobody wants, like rattlesnake catching. Anybody want that job? Rattlesnake catching or septic take uh, cleaning. Clean or my favorite, Mike actually posted this one on his website if anybody was looking for a new career. If this is you, this job's available. Uh, he writes this. This is roadkill collector. Must be able to work long hours braving oncoming traffic while picking up creatures of various size and breed and in various states of decay. Benefits include working outside. Strong stomach A+. plus. Now, some of y'all are thinking, man, that, that sounds pretty good. That's better than my current job. Sign, sign me up for that one, right? So bitter people, bitter tasks. But perhaps more than anything, it's just this kind of pervasive bitterness that many of us experience, the, the bitterness of meaninglessness. Perhaps more than anything else I hear from folks, they'll come to me and they'll just say, Aaron, you know, can you please tell me that what I do Monday through Friday actually matters. Can you just tell me that, that all of this is for some kind of purpose? Something more than just paying my bills. So we've all experienced the bitterness of work, the curse of work. In fact, Solomon, uh, one of the wisest people to ever live, articulated this over 3,000 years ago in the book that we now have in the Old Testament known as Ecclesiastes. And I just love how Solomon describes the effect of this bitterness in work. He, he describes work as a kind of chasing after the wind. Listen to how he writes this. He says, So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. 
All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, listen to this, even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. Okay, let's pray and go home. (laughs) I just love how honest the biblical writers are about our work, aren't they? I mean, they're not pulling any punches here. They're not pretending or looking at this through rose-colored glasses. And what was true 3,000 years ago is equally true today. Our work at times can be very, very difficult. But the writer of Ecclesiastes doesn't leave us there. In fact, in just a few verses, he points the way forward. He gives a glimmer of hope about how God might begin to redeem our work. Look at what he writes in the very next chapter. He says this, I know, yet, yet, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be joyful and do good as long as they live, that each of them may eat and drink and take pleasure in all their toil. This is the gift of God. Now, this is a remarkable statement if we actually take it at face value. Because what the writer is saying is that in spite of work being hard, in spite of work being toil, there is, there can be a kind of joy, a kind of pleasure, a kind of satisfaction that we can experience in our work. And eating barbecue and enjoying a glass of wine is actually part of that. Did you see it? It's in the Bible right there. But more on that in just a moment. You see, work in our sin-tainted world will always be marked by hardship and toil. That is a given. That is the result of the fall. That's what Genesis and Ecclesiastes teaches us. But just as Jesus came to redeem us from the mark of sin on our souls, so also God wants to redeem our work. To bring good where there is evil, justice where there is corruption, love where there is hate, and beauty where there is ashes. This is the gospel, and it applies to our work just like it applies to every other area of our life. So how do we do that? How do we participate in God's redemptive work in our work? Well, with a few minutes we have remaining, I want to give us three uh, practices, three steps that we could try, we can take this week to join with God in his redemptive work in our work. Number one is this, first practice, is that we can put work in its rightful place. Put work in its rightful place. Uh, The author Tim Keller, in his book, Every Good Endeavor, says that when it comes to work, we tend to make one of two mistakes, and I love this. He says that we either make too much out of our work, or we make too little. It's kind of like the Goldilocks problem, right? Let's talk first about how we make too much out of our work. Well, I don't know about you, but from a very young age, I heard this message loud and clear, that what I did for my work is where I will ultimately find my identity and worth, right? That's the message I got. In fact, every Thanksgiving, Grandma asked me the same question, right? 
as if she couldn't remember from last year. She'd say, so what are you going to be when you grow up? Right? It's a favorite question of adults everywhere. And it's certainly one that your Aunt Edna will ask this holiday season. So here's the problem with that question. We, it can be a bit misleading, as if what we do and who we are is the same thing. In fact, the early 20th century doctor Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this. He said, whole cemeteries could be filled with the sad tombstone, born a man, died a doctor. See, Lloyd-Jones was a doctor himself, and, and what he writes is that many of his colleagues had lost their identities to their careers. They were no longer people. They were only what they did. And this isn't true just of doctors. We are all susceptible to this. Equating our identity with our career or our report card or our title or our position. And when we do this, we make more out of our work than it should. We try to make our work do something that it was never designed to do. And rather than worshiping God through our work, we subtly begin to worship our work. This is why Keller goes on in his book to say that workaholism is nothing more than idolatry. We have turned our work into a kind of God in our lives, and everything else must serve it. Now, it might be tempting to think that workaholism is a problem of our modern world only, but as it turns out, this problem existed way before smartphones and email. Listen to how Psalm 127 describes it. Psalm 127 opens, Unless the Lord builds the house... The builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain do you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for the Lord grants sleep to those he loves. Isn't that great? Now, high schoolers, listen, here, listen. Next time your parents give you grief about sleeping in, you just quote this psalm to them. Say, in vain do you rise early in the morning, right? You see, God did not design us to be workaholic machines. When work knows no limit, when work knows no boundaries, it wreaks havoc on our physical health and our relationships. And it's a real problem for many of us today, especially here in a Lake Norman kind of culture where we go, 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 go. But we can also make the equal and opposite mistake, Keller says. Not only can we make too much out of our work, we can also make too little. I mentioned a Barna study last week that measured workers' engagement in their jobs. And the sad reality for many of the participants was that they reported being disengaged or what they said, quote, not really trying in their work. And whether you're a student or a stay-at-home mom or an office manager, we are all prone to kind of just giving up in our work, aren't we? of just clicking on autopilot, of just mailing it in. And the Bible has a word for this. The Bible calls it a sluggard. I love Proverbs 20 says this. The sluggard, the sloth, does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. Over and over the scriptures teach that we are to be diligent and hard working, but hard work is not everything. We must work hard, but we must also rest. 
And this is the model that God has given us. God worked and then God rested. Look at how Genesis 2 describes God's rhythm. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had what? Finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. You see, the Sabbath is God's gift to us. The Sabbath is God's rhythm, God's model for how we are to live as well. It is a time of rest, a time of reconnection with him and with our families. And of all the spiritual practices that Jesus commands to us, commends to us, excuse me, I think this is the one that is most countercultural for us today. We are so overworked, overbooked, overscheduled, overexhausted. The idea of resting one day a week simply sounds crazy to us. Aaron, how am I going to get it all done if I take one of my seven days that I don't do? And I just want to ask, as Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you? How are we doing on this one? And I, I want to pause for a moment and just kind of speak as a pastor. And I especially want to speak to the parents for a moment. Do you have a day where you turn your work off? A day where you don't look at email, you don't check your texts, you don't go to the office? Because, you know, uh, as one person described, the email, text, work in our digital environment, that stuff has become like digital kudzu, right? I mean, it'll just grow everywhere. It'll take over your whole life if you let it. But Sabbath... Sabbath is how we push back against the tide of work to find the rest that we so deeply need. And Sabbath isn't just for adults. It's for kids, too. Remember, they are doing God's work in their schooling, in the developing of the resources and talents and minds that God has given them. And sometimes we can take every free moment in our child's life and we can fill it with so much extracurricular stuff that we rob our kids from the very rest that they need to thrive. You and I were made for work. We were made to work hard, but we must rest harder. How are we doing on this one? First practice we can do to engage with God in his redemption of our work is to put work in its rightful place. Second one is this. We can recognize the work God is doing in us. Oftentimes, difficulty in our work is the very thing that God uses to shape and form his character in us. Remember, this is God's primary objective for you and for me. He wants us to grow to become more and more like Jesus. He wants us to grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the kind of character he wants to grow in us. And one of the ways God redeems the difficult parts of our work is that he uses them, he repurposes them to produce this kind of character in us. little story from my own life. One of the important parts of my work is writing and giving sermons. And I give my best energy to this task every week. And sometimes that means going above and beyond to try to make the message 
come alive. Uh, One Sunday this last year, that meant driving to Huntersville early before services to pick up some bacon-topped maple donuts from Duck Donuts. Now, some of y'all may have been here for that Sunday morning, but what you might not have known was that morning when my two boys and I were driving across 73 early to go get the donuts, we got stopped on the bridge midway behind a giant piece of machinery that Duke Energy was moving across the bridge at about two inches an hour. (laughs) And I'm sitting there for, and we're about, what was it? It was about half an hour, 45 minutes into it, Andrew, you remember this? And we're sitting there, we're driving across, and I'm starting to freak out, right? I'm thinking... I can't turn around. I don't even know if I'm going to get across the bridge before the services start, let alone be able to get over, turn around, and come back. Forget the donuts. Right? And so I'm sitting there, I'm freaking out, and, and I'm like, and I, at one moment I burst out loud. I said, I don't know what to do. When Andrew says to me, well, Dad, maybe God's using this moment to teach you about patience and self-control like you're preaching about today. <laughs> point, point. Sometimes God uses the very difficulty in our work to produce in us what nothing else can produce. Look how James, the brother of Jesus, describes this same idea in his letter. He says, consider it pure joy. There's that word again. Joy in our work. Is that possible? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, especially the Duke Energy kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may become mature and complete, not lacking anything. What if the next time you faced difficulty in your work, What if instead of saying, I give up, you said, God, I surrender. God, I submit to whatever it is you want to grow in me through this experience. And this is not kind of a hypothetical or spiritual exercise. This is a very real Monday morning question. Tomorrow morning, I promise you, before it is lunchtime, you will face some kind of difficulty, won't you? In your classroom, or in your living room, or in the office, or in the field. And how will you respond in that moment? What if God really does want to use that hardship or that challenge to bring about something good in you? First practice, we've got to keep working in its right place. Second practice, we've got to recognize the work God is doing in you. And third and finally, number three, my tongue twister for the day. You must do your work as Jesus would do your work if Jesus had your work to do. <laughs> Ready? Let's say that out loud together. No, I'm just kidding. Are we going to mess up? Yeah. You want to try it? Let's try it. Ready? Do your work as Jesus would do your work if Jesus had your work to do. That meter didn't work. I broke up the iambic pentameter there. Sorry about that. All right. Here we go. Here we go. Uh, this one could be a little bit counterintuitive, can it? Because we tend to think that Jesus is what we do on Sundays for an hour and work is what we do Monday through Friday for 40 hours. Okay, 50 hours. 60 hours on Monday through Friday. But this is not how God works, is it? Jesus is as much a part of my work life as he is my church life. This is why he taught us to pray, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom is how God would do things if they were God's to do. 
And what if we were to pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done in my work, in my job, in my home, as it is in heaven? What would it look like this week if you were to pray, God, would your kingdom come? How would you do your work if you did it the way Jesus would do it if it was his to do? Here are some questions. How, how would God run this meeting if he was running it? How would God do this job if he were the one doing it? How would God dig the ditch, paint the house, clean the teeth, close the deal? How would God study for this test? Well, that one kind of doesn't work. He already knows the answers. But anyway, you get the idea, right? How would you do your work? How would Jesus do your work? If your work, well, I can't even do it. How would, do your work as Jesus would do your work if Jesus had your work to do? I'm going to learn how to phrase that in a question here in a minute. But you get the idea. What would it look like to invite Jesus into your work this week and say, God, help me to do this the way you would do it? Now, of course, some of you will say, Aaron, uh, this is all fine and good. In fact, I got an email to this effect this week. My kids are grown and I'm retired. What does all this work talk have to do with me? But it has everything to do with you, and here's why. Just because you are retired doesn't mean God doesn't have important work for you to do. It just means you don't get paid for it anymore. <laughs> the funny thing about retired folks is that at this stage of your life, you have more time, more wisdom, more experience, more resources, more life to share than you have ever had in the history of your existence. You can volunteer, you can mentor, you can encourage, you can coach, you can run errands, you can pray. You can serve our kids in Kentropolis here at Lake Forest Church. There is plenty of work, good work, that God has for you to do. And what if your best work is actually still in front of you? You see, the big idea this morning is this, that whatever your age, life is never simply about the pursuit of pleasant manageability. God didn't make you for that. He made you for so much more. This is why Paul writes at the end of his first letter to the Corinthians, this reminder about their work. He says, always, when? Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Will our work in the Lord sometimes feel like toil? Yes. Will our work at times cause us to break a sweat? Yes. Will our work in the Lord sometimes be hard? Yes. But so is anything in life worth doing. What good work, what important work does he have before you this week? What if you were to do that work as if doing it unto the Lord? Let's pray. Father, this morning we come, and many of us may come weary or discouraged, disliking, maybe even hating the work that's in front of us. Lord, some of us work with coworkers or colleagues that, well, talk talk about bitterness God that just feels like what every day of work is 
And Lord, we pray that somehow this week, through the power of your spirit, we might experience the joy of working as if working for you. Lord, that through your spirit, we might experience your redemption of our work that is promised in your scriptures. Lord, when it's hard, teach us how to work in your strength. And when we need rest, teach us how to rest in your rest. That is our prayer this morning, and we make it in Jesus' name. Amen.